As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Today's episode of Stray from the Source is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Very pleased to be joined by Dean Evison, the coach of the Minnesota Wild, uh, this afternoon here on a Thursday. And uh, Dean Evison, uh, his last two years in Kamloops in the junior in the Western Hockey League, he scored 71 goals and 164 points one year, 49 goals and 137 points his final year. Uh, went on to a uh, long NHL career, played 803 games in 13 seasons with the Hartford Whalers, the Washington Capitals, the San Jose Sharks, the Dallas Stars, and the Calgary Flames. And immediately after retiring as a player, he became a coach in 1998 and hasn't stopped since after stops as an assistant in, in Washington. Six years as the head coach with the Milwaukee Admirals in the last two years with the Minnesota Wild. Manitoba Hall of Famer. Uh, Dean, how are you this afternoon? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, Dean, tell me, first of all, what is Flin Flon Manitoba like? I know you moved to Brandon when you were a teenager, but tell me about Flin Flon. It's a mining mining city, um, and uh, literally it's built on rock. Like, houses are built on rock. Um, I remember the, the, the golf course. Um, I haven't been back for a few years, but I remember playing the golf course, and the first green or the first uh, fairway has, like, a massive uh, rock right in the middle of the fairway, about 150 yards out. Um, and it's just, it's literally built on rock. It's beautiful. Um, fishing's awesome. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's quite Northern obviously. And then, uh, I, I left Flin Fawn and went, uh, to Thompson, which is even more North than, uh, Flin Fawn in Manitoba. And it seems like you have a, a ton of buddies. I know every time we're in Winnipeg, uh, I'll see you at breakfast and you're sitting there holding court with three or four guys that look like old pals of yours. 
Yeah, we, we've got a, you know, I've got a lot of family uh, in the area, but uh, a lot of buddies, a lot of my buddies are from Brandon, uh, Manitoba now. And um, that's where my, uh, my parents moved. Uh, we lived, I went from Thompson to Winnipeg and then lived there for uh, six years and then uh, Manit- uh, Brandon, Manitoba. And that's where my parents um, settled and uh, retired. And, and uh, my dad, um, passed away last summer, but my mom's still in Brandon. But yeah, a lot of my buddies uh, have always come to games uh, if I was playing or coaching uh, in Winnipeg. And your dad uh, was is also in the Manitoba Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, um, actually, my dad, my brother, and I are all in the yeah. Manitoba um, Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, my brother's in there for a builder category. He coached uh, junior and uh, was general manager of the Flintflon Bombers. Um, but my dad's also in there in the baseball, uh, Manitoba baseball hall of fame. So he was, uh, wow. quite an athlete. That's awesome. And then you go on and you, you play junior in Kamloops and, uh, and you were a junior star. And I, I know like w- when I talked to Ken Hitchcock, who started coaching Kamloops, uh, the year after you left, uh, to turn pro, he was telling me what type of uh, a hero you are there from, from really scoring a huge game six, uh, WHL overtime winner uh, with uh, Daryl Ray in that and uh, a lot of really quality players that, that played on your team back then. Yeah, Robbie Brown, Greg Hoggood, um, uh, Doug Bodger. We, we, had, uh, we had a lot of guys that went on, uh, played pro. I could keep going through the list. But, yeah, I mean, it was a very exciting year um, to win the Western Hockey League as we did. Um, the franchise had been struggling uh, in, in Kamloops for a few years. And, uh, what really turned it around was, uh, we had a coach come in, Bill LaForge. And obviously there's lots of stories out there of how crazy he was, but he really, <laughs> um, turned our, uh, our hockey club around and, and the franchise there and, um, really instilled a winning attitude in, in, in all of us, obviously as, uh, uh individuals, cause we all went on to play, but m- more importantly as a team and, uh, you know, that series that we played against the Regina Pats went seven games. It was an absolutely phenomenal series. Um, it was so much fun to play in. And, uh, yeah, I think it set up, you know, that year, I think, set up the franchise, uh, you know, to go on and have the success, uh, you know. And obviously Ken Hitchcock coming in was uh, was phenomenal for, for the city and the, and the team. But uh, there was a, a lot of different uh, uh, things that happened that year that really allowed them to uh, go forward. One of the, I don't know if it's urban legend or if it really happened, but Ben Kuzma, the Vancouver writer, when we were in Vancouver for one of your games down the stretch, he was telling me a story that that one that you were the captain of the team and that Kamloops was so cash strapped that they were looking to potentially relocate and that you, after a game, went door to door to to kind of seek support and help sell tickets and save the franchise. Well, I think like a lot of people do now, I think a lot of teams do. You know, they have players get out in the community and 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 hand out ticket. Um, season tickets to fans and and yeah I think uh, I think our franchise was uh, very uh, ahead of the the game that way and and yeah we were we were struggling um, you know we didn't have a lot of fan support our, our arena wasn't um, a, a very large arena it was uh, and so yeah we had to get out in the community and uh, we all did um, we we did obviously our appearances and uh, and we did a little door-to-door to uh, drum up some excitement to come watch us play 
We're talking to Dean Everson on Straight From The Source. And again, to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash Straight From The Source will get you in for 40% off. Um, Dean, uh, and I want to talk to Dean a lot about um, obviously taking over the wild. Uh, the fact that he is a uh, golf junkie and a big-time golf junkie. Uh, the fact that he's such a gym rat, he's, talked, uh, he's turned his, his apartment in St. Paul into like a, a hot yoga studio. But I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about, um, about your young hockey career. Again, uh, your, your final year in junior, you had such a great, great year. And then you look in, on the Brandon Wheat Kings, there's a guy named Ray Ferraro that turned out to be your roommate in Hartford, had 108 goals and 192 points his last year of junior. How, how good was Ray Ferraro as a junior player? Oh, my gosh. Um, as, as good as it gets, um, you know, to score that many goals. He had a defenseman, a guy named Cam Plant, that, uh, that fed him. And I just remember <laughs> watching uh, him play and obviously playing against him. But uh, as soon as Cam got the puck, Ray just took off and, and he would find him. And Ray had such skill um, that uh, he was able to produce and, and obviously produce at a, a high rate. But uh, Ray and I have been connected for a long time, um, you know, uh, really a love-hate relationship. I think we've, uh, we, we were very competitive. Um, when I got traded to Hartford, we were both, uh, you know, small center icemen and we were competing um, for jobs. But we always, it, it, we had an incredible relationship as far as uh, we stayed in Hartford in the summers. We played a lot of golf together. We played probably more tennis than we did golf. And Ray and I would meet every few days um, at a different uh, tennis court or around uh, the Hartford area, clay courts, uh, hard true courts, hard courts. Um, and we would play and we would have such a competitive game. Um, we always competed with each other, um, always wanted to beat each other, but um, have really stayed close for, for so many years. I, I think, you know, I mean, we were drafted. I think Ray was drafted one, one uh, pick ahead of me. And so we've always been it, – it's funny. It's, we, we've been really connected with the scoring titles in, in, in the Western Hockey League and then in pro. And, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a great guy. Obviously, does a, a tremendous job on uh, on TV, and um, you know we we've been able to stay uh, connected for a lot of years. Now, when you lived with him in Binghamton, were you on Hartford at that time, or were you still on the Washington Capitals? Because I know you guys scared, uh, shared a franchise for a little while, right? Yeah, we were. I was with Washington, um, okay, and and Ray was with Hartford and in Binghamton. Uh, we were both in Binghamton, and and uh, the uh, you know the affiliation was half half Binghamton and half Hartford. And I got traded uh, that trade deadline uh, that season that, that we lived together. And then I never did get called up. Uh, Ray did. I got called up the following uh, season to, uh, to Hartford. It's, it's funny that you said that, you know, love-hate relationship with Ray, because I remember one of the most infamous Ray Ferraro things that I covered was actually at the L.A. Forum once when Scott Mellenby got suspended at the end of the game for butt-ending Ray in the face, and then Scott and him became really good buddies, um, either with the Atlanta Thrashers or the St. Louis Blues, or maybe even both, because I know uh, Ray ended his career with St. Louis, but there must be something about Ray that just, uh, <laughs> when, you're, when you're with them and you're teammates with them, you realize how great of a guy he is, but when you're going against him, he's, he's a competitor. Somebody that really pisses you off, is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, That's I what I always he, say to yeah. I always say to Ray, I always say to Ray, what did you do to make Scott Melamy butt end you in the face? So Right. Well, he talked and obviously he's made a <laughs> career of uh of, of speaking and uh and, and talking, but uh, he constantly talked, uh, always. Like it was and he had wonderful one liners. 
um, and and was very witty with uh, with his comebacks. Uh, but what what people like Ray obviously was a skilled guy and and scored goals. But what what people don't give I think Ray and obviously I guess people give him credit. But you play that long and you score that much. He competed his butt off, and if there was a puck around the net, he was finding it, and and he had such great hands that he was uh, he was going to score, and he just competed and, and battled, um, and you know you didn't get a lot of fights or you know whatever but that doesn't mean that you're you're tough when you compete you he he was gritty he played hard um and i think probably what really ticked people off is that he was very witty and uh and, and if you did something to him or you said something uh he was <laughs> definitely getting the last uh, the last shot at you so i i'm sure a lot of guys wanted to uh to rip his head off because of it yeah, he is, and he is well spoken, as as you said. I mean, whenever I'm doing a feature on anybody um, that I know that Ray Ferraro has seen a lot of, I, I always call him up just for insight. I'm doing a Kaprasov story next week, and same thing. Uh, you know, I mean, Ray is between the benches at the Olympics uh, watching Kaprasov play. So the first person I called was Ray for that story, and and his quotes are absolutely unbelievable. Um, tell me about the bull, uh, the the big bull that you guys had in in uh, when you played with him in Binghamton. Yeah, a car that we named the Bull is a Ford Matador. I have no idea what year it was, but I think we bought it for three hundred bucks or five hundred bucks, and um, we bought it together. and And it was a, a piece of crap. And two guys on our team, Dan Bourbon and Mike Hoffman, had a, a Cadillac. And literally, when we saw each other on the road or in the parking lot, we would seek each other out and actually ram into each other from the back end. I mean, obviously not dangerously in the side and what have you, but just bumping each other. And whenever we saw each other, it would, it would happen like that. And Ray and I always tell the story that our girlfriends flew down and, uh, and were staying with us and they, they dropped us off at the rink and they had left and, and Bourbonnet and, uh, and Hoffman just came in and they saw the bull driving and and they immediately sped over to it and rammed into the back end and i guess it just scared the heck out of the girls and the guys come in the dressing room and they're like uh guys i i think uh you're we're gonna be in trouble with your girlfriends because we just slammed into the back end of uh of the bull but uh, we had a lot of fun with it um we ended up leaving it on the street well i did um and a policeman took it for his 16 year old son at the end of the year um but, uh, but yeah, no, we had a lot of fun, a lot of stories. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a, uh, a good start to our, uh, our careers, uh, starting in Binghamton. There's a little more to that story. Didn't the, the, <laughs> the policeman call you in Manitoba and be like, and, and like, what is this car doing on the street for like months at a time? Yeah. You just yeah, leave they, it when you went home. Yeah. They found out his register. Well, Ray was called up and, um, <laughs> our, our season ends in, in Binghamton. And I, I asked around to the trainers and everybody, does somebody want it? What do you want to do with it? Anyway, nobody wanted it. And being, you know, a 20 year old kid, I, uh, I took the plates off it, stuck our pots and pans in it and just left it on the street right outside our apartment. And a couple of months later, a month later, the cop, uh, I get a phone call from a cop in Binghamton and he asked me, he says, you know, what are you doing with this car? It can't sit here. It's got no license on it. And I said, I said, I don't, I don't know. I didn't know what to do with it. I, you know, I would rush to get out of town and this and that. And I, I said, do you want it? And he said, I, well, I got a 16 year old son. He says, sure, I'll take it. So I said, if you can get in, the keys are inside it. I said, just get in it. I had an extra key, but there is a, we put a key inside in the event that uh, we came back. And anyway, he took the car and his 16 year old son had a, had a vehicle. 
Amazing. Um, the, the Hartford Whalers, uh, who's the number one center on that team? Ron Francis. And the number two center was Ray Ferraro. So well, you right I'll away. Let, well, Ray, Ray or I. <laughs> okay. So, but it did seem like you realized right away, though, that you had to turn yourself into something that wasn't just a scorer, right? That, that if you were going to have a long NHL career, that you had to sort of transition your game? Absolutely. Uh, and, and when I was in Binghamton, I was able to, uh, um, to, to, to have some offense. Uh, actually, Paul Fenton and Kevin Deneen uh, and I were, were aligned when I first got there, when I, my first season. And, and it was obviously tremendous to play with the, those two guys. Uh, but I was able to produce. And when I first got to Hartford, I, I did as well. I think I had 20 goals the first two seasons that I was there. Um, and But I quickly realized, uh, like just watching a guy like Ray and obviously Ronnie and, and the guys in the league, that, that you know that's not going to be my game and I and you know I I just I guess got slotted into your so-called third line role um you know and and I knew that penalty kill and and playing a grittier game uh you know to survive in the National Hockey League when in that era playing against you know Gretzky and Lemieux and Messier and and uh, all these just tremendously uh, talented players um that I had to find a way to survive and uh, the way to survive was uh, was to play a a gritty game, play a defensive game, rely on uh, rely on that. But obviously, we all um, have to be good teammates, um, and and I was able to play. I think longer than uh, than I probably uh, well, I definitely would have if I uh, if I just relied on a, on an offensive game. It's amazing when you look at the rosters of those teams. I mean, you know, you have Quenville on there, you have Dave Tippett. Uh, you know, Mike Liute, Kevin Deneen, as you mentioned, Paul Fenton, Ron Francis. Uh, you know, I know I think Emil Francis was your was your GM at the time. Um, it, it's amazing how many people that were on those teams are still involved in the game in some capacity, whether it's as an agent or a, a GM or a coach or, or assistant coaches. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about the, the centerman. It was like Ronnie Ray myself and uh doug jarvis was uh was uh centerman on our on our team right and he was he was an older guy obviously but uh who uh, you know again clearly you know was coached for um so many years and uh, uh yeah it it was it, it and everybody asked that question like why like and i don't think anyone has the answer and i i've heard different guys talk i've heard joel talk i've heard tippy talk Ray talk of, of why so many guys are still in the game and everybody just kind of, you got to give a little bit of perspective. Um, I talked to um, uh, Brian Burke the other day and, and he had a little perspective of, of that uh, Emil Francis brought in character for people when he brought and And so maybe we're all character guys, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go on and be a, a, you know, in, in the hockey business. So um, I don't have a clue why, um, but I, I know that we were all around the same age. I knew we, we literally uh, grew up together. We all stayed there in the summers. We, we went on holidays together. Um, and, and I mean, when I'm saying holidays together, it wasn't two or three guys. It was 10, 15 guys. Mm-hmm. We all went down to Florida uh, to Sawgrass and, and played golf and with our families. And so I, and we've always, uh, and, and all of us have stayed contact and, and it hasn't been a daily contact, but whenever we see each other, or I talk to Joel and when he was in Chicago or, or tip obviously this year in Edmonton, it's like, uh, it's like we were riding the bus, uh, to, to the Boston garden again. 
That's awesome. A, d- a different era, no doubt. Um, and I would have loved to have known uh, Mel Francis. I knew his son, Bobby, really well, who used to coach the uh, Phoenix Coyotes, but uh, but I never got to know Emil. He seemed like an incredible, incredible uh, person and a hockey person, Dean. Yeah, and, and like and just wanted guys just to work and just to compete, and, and I think he did. He, he wanted strong people. Um, obviously, he had a, a tremendous hockey mind and, and put – um, you know, uh, great teams together, but, uh, but he was a people first person and, um, you know, cared about his team, cared about his players and, uh, expressed that, uh, constantly, um, and wanted to create that family atmosphere that, uh, um, that's so important to, for teams to have success. We're talking to Dean Evison. Uh, this is Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Again, to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash straight from the source. That'll get you in. We have uh, not only articles by 400 writers uh, that are somehow churning out incredible content every day with no sports. Uh, we have podcasts galore. Uh, one of my favorites is The Vancast uh, with Jeff Patterson and Thomas Drance. And this week they have the best player I've ever covered in the NHL, Pavel Bure. Uh, Pavel scored 58 and 59 goals back-to-back to year with the Florida Panthers in a clutch-and-grab era, so uh, be sure to listen to that podcast. Um, Dean Gavis- Evison is my guest. I have a, a still a ton to talk to him about about the Minnesota Wild, but I did want to ask you, um, I, one of my uh, favorite parts of that story that I wrote on you to kind of introduce Wild fans to you after you took over there in February, Dean, was, was, um, was uh, Daryl Ray talking about this closet that you had when you live with him of just VHS tapes galore of just golf outings of, of, of watching golf on TV. This is probably pre before the golf channel existed. And yet you would sit there and almost teach yourself how to play golf by watching all these, uh, VHS tapes. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. I, um, I, I, I don't have them all anymore. I, I actually turned them into uh, DVDs at one point and, and what, but yeah, just masters tournaments and old, um, just, just important tournaments or, or exciting tournaments that I, I watch Jack Nicklaus, uh, you know, just watching him play and, um, so many of the older great guys. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely addicted to golf. I am a golf junkie. I would, uh, I would play every day if my, if my back would allow me to do it. But, um, uh, but yeah, Ray, uh, you know, and, or, or, uh, Daryl, uh, him and I played a lot together as well. Um, we obviously played in cameras together, so um, yeah, I, uh, I I am definitely a golf junkie. There's no question about that. I, I called you a uh, scratch golfer in my article today, and somebody, one of your buddies, uh, texted me right away. He said he's a two to three handicap. He's not a scratch golfer or whatever. Do you? Are you a scratch golfer? <laughs> no, I'm not a scratch golfer. Okay. I, I fake I can, fake I news can, in the athletic today. I can get yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can get it down to two at the end of the year, but, um, but, but that's it. I mean, I just, I, I love to play. I mean, I, you know, as everybody knows, golf is such a difficult game and um, it's uh, you know, you can, you can shoot, you know, 90 one day and you can shoot 72 the next. And, um, but it's just so much fun to be out there. Uh, what is your favorite courses that you've played in the, in the country or, or the world? Uh, country, my, my favorite course by far is Wingfoot um in New York uh close to Hartford we used to go play there uh quite a bit I'm not sure if Joel Quinville had the contact or Ronnie Francis but uh, obviously he had to be a member play with a member to to play there and uh, it's got 36 holes played so many U.S. Opens there so that is by far my favorite course Pebble Beach because it's uh 
um, just uh, just thrilling to stand on every tee. And uh, when I played in San Jose, Doug Wilson had a connection there, so we were able <laughs> to play there a lot. And then Olympic Club in San Fran, obviously, is uh, you know played U.S. Opens there as well. And and uh, again, Doug Wilson uh, um, was able to set us up at uh, so many courses around the Bay Area. Uh, when we played in San Jose, was uh, was one of my favorites as well. How about uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin? What are your favorites? Well, I've I've been I haven't played a whole lot because I I go back to uh, Canada, back to Montreal in the summer. Um, but I, I've actually just played. We we played a couple. Well, there's three or four uh, public courses that um, we've played here: Presswick, uh, Troy Byrne. Really enjoy Keller. Um, the history of Keller, uh, right close to downtown St. Paul here is, uh, is absolutely phenomenal. And, and that's why I say in some of these courses that, uh, you know, that are public, uh, that, that are accessible to people, um, are just uh, fabulous golf courses. And, and I really enjoy getting out and playing them. Who's a better golfer, you or Mace, or does it depend on the day? Bob well, Mason, the wild goalie coach. Yeah, Mace is, uh, he can play. Um, <laughs> he, he's probably a scratch. Um, I, I've got him a couple of times, but I would say um, uh, he would, uh, on a consistent basis, he would probably beat me. How about Mike Madano? You guys played together in Dallas, and I know that he, he loves uh, playing golf with you. I, I would beat Mike a lot back in the day. But now that he lives in Arizona, I'm not so sure. I've seen him on a couple of celebrity uh, events, and and uh, he's 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 always had a great swing. Obviously, he's got um, such uh, great hand eye and, and such a skilled guy. But uh, but yeah, we played a lot in Dallas. Uh, he's a bit of a golf junkie uh, as well. Um, we're talking with Dean Evison, and uh, just a couple more about your playing days, uh, Dean, and then I'd like to t- uh, transition into coaching, and and then of course the Minnesota Wild. Um, one of the one of the famous Dean Evison stories when you think about him as a player is uh, the fact that you fought Dale Hunter three times in one period. Uh, it started New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty five. If I'm not mistaken, it was your first three fights in NHL history. Um, how did that all come about? About in those old Hartford, Quebec days. Well, yeah, we had quite a rivalry, and um, and Dale had been in the league, and I was new coming in, and I played a, a feisty game, not even close to his feistiness. But uh, you know, we we played a lot against uh, against Quebec, and and clearly, I would like I wanted to you know set the tone for for being there and and playing that same type of game, and and we just clashed. We uh, we fought the first time, and and uh and then came out of the penalty box and uh i i can't remember if it was him or i just said you want to go again and and it was more of a heated thing and and we said yeah sure and we, and we fought and then uh literally came out of the penalty box again and we didn't even have to say anything we just went to the face-off circle looked at each other and dropped the gloves and fought and i do remember i could not move my neck for probably a week <laughs> um dale's probably another uh, 40 pounds heavier than me and um he's a strong strong farm boy and um but you know and, and you and i've talked about this that we uh we we met years later and and uh we're having a a beer at, i think it was at the memorial cup and and we just rehashed uh, everything that happened and both of us just said i mean we we were trying to survive i mean we were trying mm-hmm. to trying to survive and and that's what uh what we both thought we had to do uh in order to continue to uh to play the game at at the nhl level and you were actually on his staff, and uh, when he coached the Caps, right? Yeah, I uh, yeah, and then um, he came in and uh, 
took over for Bruce actually uh, uh, that year, and and uh, so there was a lot of stories uh, about that. But I have one other fighting story you might find interesting. Yeah. Um, is that I scored one hat trick in my career, and it was literally on my father's birthday, um, January seventh, uh, and I believe the year was 80, 1989, And Ray's involved in this too. Um, it was against the Calgary Flames. We were playing in Calgary and I scored a hat trick in the first period. It was like the, like the first three goals, that natural hat trick. I think it was like 11 or 12th minute of the first period. Um, I score a hat trick and I think it's Tori Robertson and, and Poplinski or Hunter, Tim Hunter were fighting. And in those days, everybody just stood around and Doug Risebrow was the captain of the Calgary Flames. They were in a slump. We were already up 3 nothing at the 10-minute mark or 11-minute mark, whatever it was. And I was standing beside him. I'm just watching the fight. And he looks over at me and says, we have to go. And I, I said, come on. I said, I got a hat trick. I said, I, I, can't, I can't fight. He goes, you have to fight. I'm the, he was the captain of the team. He says, I have to show my team. And so at, in those days, you just say, yeah, okay. And we fought. Second fight in the game. Got kicked out So set for a second fight. So I get kicked out of the game. I've got a hat trick. Ray actually went on and scored a hat trick after I scored a hat trick. Wow. Um, good story, though. I, got, I was first star and he was second. So I've got that <laughs> over him. But I got off the ice and I, I get my clothes off and there's no TV and, you know, like there was back then. And, and my mom and dad were in Brandon, Manitoba, getting the highlight or getting the, the, the scores in between periods. But I called my dad. I went out, got a payphone, and called my dad. And he goes, "What the what the heck are you doing? Like you're supposed to be playing." I said, "Well, I scored a hat trick." He says, "Well, that's great, but why are you calling me?" And I said, "Well, I got a, in a second fight. And I got kicked out of the game, so I'm done." <laughs> but I said, "But I said happy birthday, Dad." <laughs> that's hilarious. And Doug Risebrow, of course, the uh, first GM of the Minnesota Wild. And then you know what? Doug Risebrow ended up signing me. He was the general manager for the Calgary Flames, and I got let go in Dallas. Got uh, uh, they didn't renew my contract. And Bob Gainey talked to Risebrow, and he signed me uh, to the Calgary Flames uh, years later. Um, and I'm thinking possibly because of uh, because of that competitiveness. What a, what a hockey world. I mean, it's just so cool that you could sit there and have such a rivalry with Dale Hunter and then wind up being his assistant coach. And, and same thing, fight Doug Reisrow in a game that you have a hat trick. And next thing you know, he's years later signing you as a player to play for the Flames. It's just uh, it's crazy how that hockey world kind of always comes full circle. You know what? Yeah. I mean, you've been around so long, too. And it's just uh, there's such great people in the game. And uh, it just uh, it, it. Yeah, you're right. It's it's such a hard-nosed game and competitive but end of the day uh, we like to think that we're all good people and uh and and you know uh, good friends after and are able to have a, a a cold beer or a drink and uh and and talk about old times and even the greats in the game and and you have relationships with uh with guys like wayne gretzky and gordy howe tell us a little bit about them well, I yeah, the two two of my best stories that I've ever told. I'm not a real great storyteller, but um, you know, everybody talks about Gordy Howe and Wayne Gretzky, arguably the two best players in in ever. And I was fortunate enough. Gordy Howe, when we were in Hartford, was uh, he would come on the ice and he would skate with us, um, and actually in practice, like would take drills and. And, uh, I mean, we're skating around like we were just like in, in incredibly in awe 
of, of actually skating with Gordy Howe uh, through practice and, and doing drills after with him and what have you. So I had a, a relationship built up with him uh, when I was there. Anyway, the, years later, I'm in Dallas and, and we're in Detroit and we lose to Detroit in the playoffs and uh, the game's over. And, and after the game, we're, we, they, they beat us out and we were in, uh, I was in the training room having a beer with the trainers and, and uh, you know, rehashing the series and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the trainer comes in, the equipment guy, and he says, there's a guy at the door for you. And I said, I don't want to go out there and having a beer and just sitting here. And relax. he said, I just said, tell him to come in here. And he goes, OK. And he walked out and he came in and he, and he opens the door and, and Gordy Howe was behind him. And so Gordy walks in. He says, I just wanted to, you know, tell you a great series and wanted to say hello. And so here I am. You know, you're obviously disappointed, but here I am introducing Gordy Howe to everybody in the training room. But that's the type of person that Gordy was. Obviously, a tremendous player, um, but a great person. And Gretzky's the same thing. Uh, the lockout year, I believe it was '94. We were playing an exhibition game. I was with Dallas, and he was with uh, LA at the time. And we were playing an exhibition game in San Antonio. And in warm up, you do three on two rushes and what have you. And, center icemen are standing at center ice uh you know waiting for the pucks to come up before you do the rushes and i he stopped and it was just him and i at center ice and it was uh in september and my my son's birthday was september 24th and i turned to him and i, I didn't have planned or anything i just turned to him and i said excuse me wayne is there, is there any chance i can get a, a stick from you i said it's my my son's birthday in a couple of weeks um and he said yeah sure what's his name and i said bryce and you know, I thought, okay, and he turned and skated away, and I did my thing, and and I thought, ah, if I get it, I get it, maybe at the end of the game or what have you, and um, I, I came in after warm-up, and I went to my stall, and standing in my stall was a stick, and it said, um, to Bryce, uh, your friend Wayne Gretzky, like sitting there uh, in my stall, so it just shows, I, I think, that how how personable hockey players are and, and how genuine they are. And, and, um, and, and I think that goes to what you said is that you can compete your butt off, but, uh, but you still have respect and, uh, um, you know, for the guy that you're doing it against. That's amazing. Um, and, and then, you know, just to transition into coaching, Dean, um, you, know, you have this great uh, career. You, fin you finish up a couple of years in Germany and you get right immediately into coaching and um, I mean, it's unreal the amount of between Kamloops, where you coached Devin Dubnik as a teenager, and Vancouver Giants and Calgary Hitmen. I've got to think that you've coached a lot of um, probably guys like Ryan Getzlaff, and you know, probably just a lot of star NHLers just when they're teenagers. Is that is that uh, accurate? Yeah, Getzlaff, Lad were on our teams uh, in in um, in Calgary, and yeah, so many so many players that you. Uh, uh, that that you've crossed paths with and coached and um, yeah it, it's it's been exciting and the thing the thing that uh, that sticks out to me when you were saying that as far as getting right into coaching it, it's funny that you, you get into coaching you think you know you you played for so long that immediately you're going to be a good coach you're going to know what to do and all that kind of stuff it takes years and and it takes all kinds of learning experiences um, good bad um, otherwise you know to to learn from from everything and in every situation. And I've been fortunate to been in, to have been in the Western Hockey League and the American League and the NHL. Um, and you're never, you're, you never stop learning. Um, and, it, you know, if I look back on those years, and I, I don't think I was a very good coach. And I think you get better and better um, with every situation 
um, and hopefully you can continue and, and uh, get an opportunity at the highest level, which uh, I've been very fortunate to have been um, put in the spot. That's awesome. Uh, and I, I bet you uh, Justin Falk was probably on that Calgary team too, right? The, the wild, the old wild Justin Falk, not, not uh, St. Louis and Carolina. Um, he was probably uh, on that old. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, there was, yeah, I can't, there's so many players, um, but yep. it, it's actually fun to go back and look um, because I have all the pictures from every year and, and actually through this, uh, this situation that we have here, I think everybody gets in and cleans their, their closets and, and, uh, and, and what have you. So I was able to get in and look at all the old pictures and, and go through them. And uh, yeah, it's exciting to look at, uh, you know, all those teams for sure. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, right now the roster of the uh, Kamloops team that Dubnik was on, and you you coach guys like uh, Scotty Upshaw and Colton Orr and Tyler Sloan. I see Eric Christensen who played for the Wild. Uh, what was a young Devin Dubnik like? I mean, you had him as a a 15 year old where he said he was essentially called up and uh, thrust into probably a situation that was a little uh, too big for him at the time. Yeah, he's got a couple of stories that he tells really well. <laughs> that I, I yelled at him one one night on the bus. Uh, um, they, I don't know if he was talking or something after we lost, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just remember Doobie is just, a, obviously a, a really, you know, tall, uh, he was so skinny at the time. Um, but just the, his, his competitiveness, his athletic ability, we used to play three on three, uh, after practice all the time with the assistant coaches and against the extra guys. And, and, uh, Doobie remembers, uh, me scoring a couple of goals on, it doesn't happen <laughs> anymore. Um, but, uh, I had just finished playing, so I was able to score a few goals on him, but, uh, but yeah, you knew, you knew that he was, uh, had the ability to, uh, you know, to play at the highest level, which, uh, clearly he has done. I mentioned early in the show that I, I wrote, uh, when you first became the wild coach, uh, the head coach, uh, not as assistant, but I kind of introducing wild fans to you. And, uh, if you're listening to this show and didn't read that, uh, the, the headline, if you go back on the athletic is, uh, I think it's just meet Dean Evison. And uh, I'll tell you, Doobie tells a couple of funny, funny stories in that story. One where, <laughs> one where, where he's sitting on the bench, called you know, called up as this young guy, and there's like a bench clearing brawl, and there was not one part that the goalies got into a fight. And he said that there's not one part of him that even realized that he had to go into the game after this. And he said right. that he's just sitting there looking at it. And he said, all of a sudden, you came down and just lit into him like, "What are you doing? Get out there!" <laughs> <laughs> like there wasn't any part of him that realized that he had to go into the game. Well, so, and I, and the way, and I don't think he wanted in there either. Yeah, no. Uh, and I'll tell you the way that Doobie tells the story. Uh, it's really wor worth uh, going back in the athletic uh, uh, search field and look for the meet Dean Evison story. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your, your rise in coaching. Obviously, then you go to win uh, to Washington. Uh, you're there for six or seven years as an assistant coach. You you worked under uh, several head coaches from Boudreaux to I think Glenn Hanlon was uh, who hired you uh, to obviously Dale Hunter and and, and so on. And then you go and you get your shot. Um, in Milwaukee as the head coach with the Admirals, Admirals for six years. I think he made the playoffs at least each year, maybe maybe five years um, there. How did that all come about? Uh, obviously, Paul Fenton's the GM of the Milwaukee Admirals at the time. Is that how you got that shot? Yeah, and, um, you know, just to, uh, like from Glenn to Bruce to, to Dale, uh, um, you, you learn from, from every coach that, uh, that you've been around, and, and not only as a, as a coach but as a player and, and certainly – what I've uh, what I learned from from all three of those guys was, uh, um, you know, tremendous uh, um, education and um, uh, from all three. Um, it was awesome. But uh, yeah, I 
when I when I was there actually before Bruce had got let go, I had talked to George McPhee and and said that I I felt that I was in a position now the way where my career was at in coaching that I would like to go um, and and try to to you know coach or, or be a head coach again and possibly be in the American Hockey League and and I asked George McPhee if uh, if if he had if he would uh, if he heard anything um, that that's that's possibly the the path that I would like to take take if it presented itself and and I had run into Paul uh, a few times through the years and 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 stated the same thing that if if there was ever an opportunity um, you know that that I might I may want to go that route. Um, it's just a natural progression progression coming from junior hockey. You know, you're coaching kids, and then in the NHL, you're your assistant coach, and then now to coach pros as a head coach. So that was the thought process. And when uh, uh, Dale decided to not be there, I interviewed or, or be back in Washington. I interviewed uh, for the head coaching job there, um, and um, Adam Oates ended up getting the job. And as soon as I uh, as soon as I left that, actually I left the interview, um, and George McPhee called me and he said we're going to go in a different direction, um, but David Poyle would like to speak to you if uh, if if you get a chance. So I called David and uh, I'd had a relationship with him. He was the the general manager in Washington. Uh, actually drafted me, uh, drafted me and traded me to Hartford. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, I interviewed there and was able to get the job. So absolutely loved my time in uh, Milwaukee. Um, it's a great city, um, real good organization. And, uh, and then I was obviously fortunate enough to, uh, get the opportunity to come here, uh, with Bruce, uh, last year. Who coached you in Washington when you played there? Was it Brian Murray? Yep. Brian Murray. Okay. And yep. uh, good, good, good story about that. Like you, you, again, you, you take a lot from different coaches, but my first game, um, in the NHL was in Long Island. I get called up to New York from Kamloops and I go to Long Island and, and obviously in the eighties, I think it was 82, something like that. They, they were, had tremendous teams. Trache, uh, mm-hmm. bossy Gillies were aligned. So, I was out on the ice uh, for a defensive zone faceoff. Trache puts it between my legs, um, throws it over to Bossy, slam dunk goal. And I come back to the bench, and I, I'm a rookie, and, and my head's down, and, and I'm just like, my God, like, what am I doing here? I'm, I just called up from junior. And literally the next defensive zone faceoff, Brian Murray put me on the ice. And... <laughs> I won the faceoff. I, I remember it vividly. I won the faceoff against Trache, and it just, it just, it just showed like what this like, and that's what I tried to do. As you, you know, you learn from that situation. You try to do the same type of things as your as you coach. I mean, I didn't try to lose the faceoff to Trache. It just happened. He, he's trying to win the faceoff, and they ended up scoring on you. But you put a guy back in that position and and ask him to. Um, you know, not allow that to happen again, hopefully. And, and uh, most guys will step up and compete even harder to not allow that to happen. That's awesome. There, There is a perfect example where my stars are aligning uh, in this game. Like uh, I grew up an Islanders diehard, grew up uh, on Long Island. But then I moved to Florida. I become the Florida Panthers beat writer. Brian Murray is the GM. And he really uh, – we had a love-hate relationship. But, man, he took me under his wing, really taught me the game. Um, and, and it treated me like that as well. It's like if, if he was but mad he was, at you, he, he just still, yep, right. he would, 
he would if you he would just rip your head off, but then he'd be right. best buddies a second later. He was just he was just yeah, awesome and and that's what with. you learn from, right? And and yeah. that's what you know that's what it's all about. And uh, you know, yeah, he was just straight straightforward. Um, you, there was no gray area. It was like you knew where you stood with uh, with Brian Murray for sure. Uh, let's talk about the Minnesota Wild. Um, you know, obviously this is your second year with the team. Uh, Dean uh, became interim coach uh, in uh, mid-February. Um, after, first of all, what is that day like when all of a sudden you show up to the rink and <laughs> thinking you're the assistant coach and next thing you know, you're the head coach? Yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, you know, we, we, I'm sitting on my desk. Uh, uh, Bob Woods and I we, we get there in the morning. We ride the bike and have our computers. We ride the bike, get our work done. I come back in. We had our meeting at 8 o'clock, uh, Bruce and Bob and Darby and, and Mace and I. And then I'm just, I'm turned around and I'm just getting my, my work done, whatever it was on that day. And, and I hear Billy, uh, come in and just said, Dean, you got a minute. And I turned around, had no idea, you know, obviously what it was about and went back to his office and he, and he, he told us that they told me that that was going down. And so it was, you know, when you're an assistant coach, you, you always, a lot of us anyway, or I did, is, is that you prepare, um, you know, and I've been a head coach a few times. So, you know, you, you tweak and you, you think, okay, in this situation, would I do this? Of course, you're going to support your head coach um, when you come out of there, but maybe you do something different. So, you know, you're jotting some things down. You're thinking about different things that you do. And then all of a sudden when it, when it gets there and, and, and gets there like it did, all of a sudden it's just like, holy smokes, like the anxiety, the pressure. It's like, okay, Billy's like, you know, just, you got a, you got a meeting at 10 o'clock with the guys. You got to go in and get your practice plan ready, um, you know, and then you got to meet with, the, like, with you guys after, and it's just like your head is absolutely spinning. And a funny story, my wife was actually on a plane from Montreal to, to come here to visit me, and she was on the plane as we were, um, as everything had gone down. I wasn't able to get a hold of her. So I finished practice talking to you guys and everything. I hadn't talked to her yet. She'd already, she got an Uber over to the house and, or to the apartment. And uh, I called her and she said her phone absolutely blew up um, when she got off the plane. She clearly knew what had gone down and, and what have you. And the guys are like, oh, she's going to be so mad at you. And um, I think, you know, you, you, marry, you marry the right person when, uh, when she said, I get it. I know how busy you are. And, <laughs> and uh, she was just excited. So... Um, yeah, it was a crazy, crazy day. And uh, and uh, Dean's wife Genevieve is actually a flight attendant that's based in Montreal, so so she's gone a lot, obviously. Um, man, what a weird. I mean, also the for the timing of the change. I mean, you have the you have as you said, you know, fast track to your first practice. Then you have an afternoon game or a late early kind of evening game against San Jose the next day. So so you don't really get to have a morning skate. Then you have a day off because it's a planned day off, and then you have a couple practices. That's probably when you started to kind of get your feet under you, right? That that first week of practice before the you know the what? father it, son it trip. Ni- yeah, you're right. It was nice to have that um, um, that practice time. Like it, you know, it, we didn't have the success obviously in that in that first game against San Jose, but um, you know, I think everybody was nervous and squeezing the sticks and and what have you. But it was nice to have have a couple of days to. Um, you know, kind of do what we're, we were going to do and uh, as a staff. So, um, but on the other part, side, just to back up, uh, very proud of my wife, by the way. I know there's a lot of essential <laughs> yeah. uh, 
essential needs and what have you and she's still flying uh, uh obviously in canada and doing her part so proud of her for doing it's that crazy yeah, yeah I, I you know i was thinking the other day dean just i mean obviously you guys fly charters but i was thinking just what it's going to be like for for kind of uh the people that fly commercial and and beat writers when when hockey starts up again about what it's going to be like on planes if we're going to have staggered seatings no middle seats have to wear masks it's going to be interesting once we all get in the air again um, how that changes, and it's probably and it's and it's frankly it's the same for inside arenas. Um, you know, are you going to jam pack eighteen thousand people in there? Sure, sure, and it's and it's and it's really scary. And um, you know, obviously, I think a lot when my when my wife's flying, she just actually got back from Germany. But you know, people have to get places, and um, you know, it's a, it's a scary time. Um, but, uh, but as I said, like, uh, like all of us, uh, with the essential, uh, workers, uh, we're, we're very proud of all of them. I remember the morning skate in Vancouver. It's your first road trip with the wild, um, after being named uh, head coach and your son's there, Bryce for the, for the father son trip. And then what's really neat is that your one of your daughters lives in B in Victor in on Vancouver Island. And then another yeah. one of your daughters that lives in Alberta flew in. And so now suddenly it's your, it's your second game with the wild, your first road trip. It's the father son trip. And you have all three of your kids with you on the morning of a victory. Um, your first victory as an NHL head coach. I mean, talk about perfect. Yeah. Um, you're actually making me choke up right now. It's, uh, and I've never really thought about it. Um, it, it, it actually was set up prior. Um, like it wasn't like, you know, I said to my, uh, my daughter in, in Calgary, like, you know, fly in because, you know, I've got the head coaching job. My, my son obviously was coming on the father's trip. And, and I said to my younger dog, my youngest one that lives in Calgary, why don't you fly out and then we'll, we'll be able to go for dinner. Um, my other daughter lives in Victoria. So the three of us will, we will have a nice dinner and then this all happened. So, um, it was great, Billy. I'm like, could I possibly bring my daughters to the, you know, the, the mentors dinner that night. So it was, uh, they were able to come to the dinner and, and, um, be around uh, the, the team and, and obviously, um, with, with me and, um, yeah, what a, what a special night and the way that it, um, the way that it went down was exciting. Um, but to have them there was, uh, for support. And, um, as you know, it was, um, such a, a great win and, and, um, such a cool, cool way to, to have it go down. Um, again, we're talking with Dean Evison, uh, final minutes of the show. Uh, appreciate Dean giving all this time. And I do have a couple uh, questions from wild fans as well. Um, but your first game in Vancouver, I mean, how fitting is it a minute in Kevin Fiala scores your first goal as a head coach. Um, and that morning, I'll, I'll never forget it. That morning I was just sitting with Kevin Fiala in, in the locker room talking about his days with you, uh, in Milwaukee. And it's the most honest I've ever heard him where he was talking about how, he basically was saying, I, I remember quoting him saying, like, I wasn't a good person in, in Milwaukee. And Dean and I had a lot of battles. And he really turned me into a pro. And I didn't realize it at the time. But now it's like you look back, like a lot of times. Um, and this is before, again, he really came into his own with you um, as a player this year. Um, can you tell us about those times with, with Kevin and, and what you had to do to kind of get his head on straight? Because I'm sure he as you've said often, wanted to be in Nashville and had to really get an understanding that, no, this is the way we do it. You first develop in Milwaukee. Right. And Kevin was young. I mean, not unlike a lot of players that come in. Young, immature, um, has all this skill. He, he sees guys in the National Hockey League, sees guys in Nashville. 
playing ahead of him that have not even close to the talent level that uh, that he has. Um, but he needed to learn how to be a pro. And that's what the American Hockey League's for, um, is to go there. Um, you're not in the limelight. He had a lot of um, learning experiences um, on and off the ice that um, we had challenges, but and several challenges, but they were all good challenges. And what I really uh, appreciated about Kevin is that it, there was no animosity after it. It was just like, we're going to go forward. I'm not holding a grudge. I never held a grudge against him for what he did, why I sat him out, um, why I had to find him or suspend him or whatever. And he didn't hold a grudge why he didn't get the play. He just, the next, he just kept learning and learning and learning. And he, he, he it didn't happen the first time. It happened the second, third, fourth time, and maybe even more. And I, 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 I know Bruce had challenges here with him too. I mean, we did. And it, it, it was Kevin had to find an opportunity to, um, or be in a position where he was ready to be a pro. He was ready to play the game the right way, but more importantly, he was ready to conduct himself um, the right way on and off the ice. And he did that and. Clearly, we saw um, him being uh, as dominant a player as uh, the NHL when uh, when it ended. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it. Obviously, again, he scores the first goal um, as Dean Everson's coaching tenure, and then he hopefully didn't score the last goal uh, because hopefully this season continues, Dean. But, what a goal, but, uh, that last again, one, too. What a, what a goal in overtime <laughs> in Anaheim. Yes. Uh, has 26 points, I believe, in his last 18 games as a wild player this season. Um, do, do you feel like... That, you know, I hate to say it like this because, again, you coach 20 different guys, but how important Kevin Fiala is to this team and your incredible relationship with him and abil- and willingness to put him in these situations, that that will be uh, something that should, <laughs> you know, not to put words in your mouth, but should stick in Bill Guerin's mind when he eventually does the full-time coaching search is how important uh, the, that relationship coach player is to a very important player on this team. Well, and yeah, and, and you and I have talked about this before, is that not only does Kevin producing at the end, Kevin was a, a great teammate. Um, and that's what really, I think, allowed not only him to play well, but for his teammates to embrace him too. And and um, and I think that that was the difference and that was the exciting part um, for us is how, how he was playing the game. And, um, you know, he wasn't, um, he wasn't just, just an offensive player. I mean, we, we were putting them in, in different situations, um, four on four, three on three. Um, you know, I, I, there's no question. We never sat him down at the end of any games. Like he was playing in all situations. We were playing some close hockey games. So he was in positions um, to, uh, to succeed, not only offensively, um, but as a, as a teammate as well. And uh, again, I did a story from Dean's conference call today that's in The Athletic that you can read about him talking about the mini training camps that he and his coaching staff have help, uh, have created. And, and Dean talks a lot about, um, you know, his hope that, that he gets to kind of finish what he started here as the wild coach, uh, whether it's this summer or beyond. Um, Dean, how, how much do you think, though, that your relationships with the players should help um, in, in the coaching search? I mean, again, I, I was telling somebody yesterday, I watch you in the locker room with guys like Cunning and Greenway, and it's the banter that you have back and forth and it seems like you know you're really respected by this team well I think that's a key point is that you know a lot of people say you know as a head coach you can't have relationships with the players and you have to be more 
um, you know, uh, not as close to them as, as you are as an assistant coach. And I disagree with that. I, I, I think, why would you change your relationship with a player because your title changes and uh, you, you, you have to have an open communication with your players and each one's different. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have the same relationship with, with Greenway as I do with, with Parise um, and, and vice versa, like so many different guys. So, um, but you, you have to find that way and, and you don't find it just as a head coach player. It's your coaching staff. And like when, when you're talking about the player, who's going to talk to him today or, you know, who's going to go give him a little tweak to see if he can play more physical tonight or who's going to give him to see if he can play. And, and we do it as a group. Um, and then we take it to the players and, and hopefully we can um, get their mindset because that's our job. Our job is to um, just get them prepared to play the game. And if we do that correctly, then we're all going to have an opportunity to have success. Um, Dean, uh, just a final couple questions. Um, you know, one thing I didn't follow up on on the call yesterday is you said that you were watching a prospect video. Um, is that prospect is that video of prospects that are potentially going to be drafted this year, or th- would that even include guys like Kaprasov, who you're about to sign as an organization? Yeah, I said prospects. I I meant prospect. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kaprasov. I I actually just watched. Uh, we are getting sent um, by um, um, by our uh, video people uh, getting sent the the prospects of the drafts and stuff. But the, that is definitely not <laughs> our department. It's fun to watch it. But I did ask our uh, our video coordinator uh, to send me um, some stuff on uh, on him, uh, and I, I was able to watch three <laughs> three different uh, games of of him. Um, and I think Billy's talked about it, obviously, but he's an mm-hmm. extremely special player. Yeah, what do you think of him as a player? You know, it's interesting because a lot of people look at him and just because he's been so hyped, they think he's going to be like the next Ovechkin, next Kovalchuk, next Bure. But he's actually not that type of player, right? He's he's a, he's a different stature. He's a different, you know, in some cases, different shot, you know, left shot uh, compared. What, what type of player do you see him being in the NHL level? Well, I mean, just watching the tapes, uh, you you see his skill level. But what... I took from watching them is his competitiveness. Like he'd go into corners um, and come out with pucks. And that was the difference to me. Like he, he clearly scored goals. He clearly set up plays. He, he skates extremely well. He, he has all that skill set. but what set uh, or what looked to me on tape anyway, is that his compete was as high as his skill level. And uh, I think that's what's uh, um, probably set him uh, apart at this point and uh, hopefully sets him apart for his long NHL career as well. Uh, lastly, Dean, uh, just, um, you know, a lot of reports that, that, that um, the state of Minnesota or the, the twin cities could potentially be a, one of the host cities. If, if uh, there is play to return this year, whether it's regular season or playoffs and host six or seven teams, maybe in the same city, play games at XL energy center, practice at a bunch of arenas in the, um, in the twin cities from maybe Schwann to Tria to St. Thomas, wherever. Um, how, how cool would that be if Minnesota is one of the teams one it, because it means that we're continuing, <laughs> but two that, uh, that, that the twin cities and wild fans and hockey fans in this incredible state, will get to see a bunch of really exciting games, at least on TV. I think it's phenomenal. And, and you and I, we talked yesterday or to the media about, uh, you know, the players and how difficult it would be to not play with fans. And our fans are so good. Um, not only the fans that come to the games every night, but just 
um, you know, the, the, the intelligence level of the fans here and the excitement level that they have for hockey um, is so much fun. Uh, for all of us to uh, to be around, so uh, yeah, if if we get to that point, boy, it would be uh, it would be so exciting. Obviously, great if they could be in the stands, but um, just to have the, the players around here, um, you know, so that the people can see that um, and see them uh, would be extremely exciting for uh, for all of Minnesota for sure. Well, Deanna, you know, thank you so much for uh, for a lot of your time uh, this afternoon. Um, one, it's been. Uh, great covering you and getting you know, uh, getting to know you a lot more. But it's been uh, fun listening to the, all these old stories. I'm sure a lot of uh, Wild fans and uh, hockey fans listening to this uh, really will be entertained. Well, thanks. Now I can only go hit balls, Mike. You took my afternoon away. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, Dean. You probably thought this was going to be like a 15 minute thing. So at least I didn't ask you the 25 Twitter questions I got for you. So, um, well, but uh, all good. We can do that another time. I appreciate. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the coverage that you're uh, you're giving us, obviously, and uh, um, you know, keeping hockey fresh and um, exciting in everybody's minds. And hopefully, we can get back to playing. Thanks, Dean, so much. I really appreciate that. That is Dean Evison, the interim coach of the Minnesota Wild, uh, maybe perhaps uh, becoming the head coach uh, officially at a full-time level at some point this summer as well. Uh, And a reminder that we've introduced a comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. So make sure you say hello and let us know how we're doing and comment about all these different podcasts that we have. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Straight From The Source on Apple if you click on the show URL, which is theathletic.com slash straight from the source. You'll get 40% off your subscription. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you.